Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our event on addressing the gender gap in Russian science, co-sponsored with our Science and Technology Innovation Program. My name is Victoria Pardini, and I am a program assistant at the Kennan Institute. Today, we will be joined by Olga Valkova and Ina Ganguly to consider the historical legacy of women in science in the Soviet Union and Russia, as well as the remaining obstacles in the field today. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you to stay up to date with upcoming events and publications on our website, as well as our podcasts, Canon X and The Russia File, and our two blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. This event is also part of our recurring programming on the status of women in Russia and Eurasia, which will continue into the spring, and you can stay up to date on that as well on our website. One last reminder. If you have a question for our panelists today, you can submit it by emailing kennan at wilsoncenter.org, by tweeting us at Kennan Institute, or by writing on our Facebook page. Please be sure to include your name and affiliation when sending your questions. Uh, let's begin today's discussion with Dr. Olga Valkova. Olga is a doctor of history and chief researcher at the S.I. Babalov Institute for the History of Science and Technology at the Russian Academy of Sciences. She specializes in social history of sciences, primarily in the history of Russian female scientists from the late 18th century to the mid 20th century. She focuses on the biographies of female scientists in different historical periods and analyzes the process of women's integration into scientific professions. She is the author of Storming the Citadel of Science, Women Scientists in the Russian Empire and an upcoming biography on the Russian astronomer, Nina Subotina. Olga, you have the floor. Thank you, Victoria. I will say a few words about historical background of the Russian of women scientists. Russian women were granted equal rights in education and in science-related professions in summer 1918. It was not a single act of equality, but several degrees by new revolutionary government. They granted free access to the university education to everyone who was willing, despite gender, nationality, and even secondary education or the lack of thereof. Also, everyone known in scientific community for his her scientific research from now on could be elected to teach. These new laws were the result of more than 50 years of intensive fight done by very girl-oriented women. But it all was very low-key and went mostly unnoticed, except by those for whom it mattered most. Girls and young women who were already born, raised, and educated in Russian Empire under its oppressive laws, who in 1918 were at the beginning of their professional careers, benefited most and became the first generation of Russian professional women scientists. Meaning they not only became laboratory researchers, university professors, participants in different exploratory expeditions and so on, known by their achievements, but for the first time in Russian history, they were able to make a living from it. However, the condition for were far from ideal. They began professional lives among civil war, famine, epidemics, and all around upheaval. They were very strong spiritually and uh, very interested in uncovering hidden mysteries of nature and not so much in career's advancement. Young women from this generation usually took their first jobs in their alma maters or find some positions with their professors who supported quest for women's education even before the revolution. As a result, they found themselves in very different places, as, for example, chemist Lydia Lepin, who even before her graduation in 1917 began working in the frontline laboratory, creating gas masks for soldiers together with her professor, Dr. Shilov. All in all, women from this generation done very well for themselves. During 1920s, they gained access to different scientific institutions and universities, had opportunities to publish the results of their research, not only in Russia, but internationally, and even to travel abroad to major scientific centers and events. Almost in every branch of science of the time, there was a well-known woman or even women uh, more than several worked in geology, chemistry, astronomy, biology and marine biology, in genetics, and even in physics and mathematics. Uh, their names were recognizable in the scientific community. They perceived themselves as equal to anyone and acted accordingly in their interactions with other scientists, administrators, everybody, in fact. They were the winners. And 
that is a very special set of mind. When in 1934 academic degrees were re-established in Russia, many of them instantly acquired degrees of doctors and professors without the need to defend a dissertation. At the same time, as the new academic degrees were issued, Soviet government created a strict hierarchy and scientific community, the top part of which became essential part of Soviet light with all benefits accessible to them. Others were not so lucky, but many from those first women were. At the time, they already had held positions as heads of different university departments, in some cases of several at the same time, as for example, uh, outstanding physicists, Glagolyva Arkadieva. Uh, she worked in two universities and in her own laboratory simultaneously. There were even a woman director of scientific institution, Lina Stern, doctor of medicine, who was the first female professor of university in Geneva and was recruited by the government in 1925, returned to the USSR and became creator and the first director of the Institute of Physiology of the USSR Academy of Sciences. All these women had good living accommodations, high salary, private transportation when needed, assistant staff in their households. Very often they were married to fellow scientists of equal or high standing or stayed single. But also usually they were overworked and very rare had a family even if they were married. Also, we don't have any statistics about, about that and it is very important just my impression based on my studies of different biographers, but their contribution to science uh, were never questioned. Their family life was strange or non-existent, but their contribu contribution to the science was really great in different uh, sciences. This generation was active from early 20s through all 30s and 40s until 50s of the 20th century were well educated, used to defend in their own interests, nearly religiously dedicated to scientific research, they accomplished a lot personally and professionally. They were part of the Soviet light, I will repeat, but they became minority among minority. Their younger sisters were not so lucky. In the late 20s, and early 30s professional union, union of scientific workers collected some data that states a very interesting fact. During 1920s, time of the newly acquired equality, less women entered scientific profession than during the previous decade when they had to somehow bypass the law to do that. Uh, the next generation arrived in mass, so to speak, only in early 1930s and girls graduated from Soviet universities in 1930s were already another breed entirely. Maybe not from the very beginning, but nonetheless. Previous generation were mostly daughters of the working intelligentsia, doctors, teachers, professors, engineers, also gentry, military bureaucrats, clergymen, sometimes merchants. Very rare one could meet a peasant daughter or a girl from a working class. Now it all changed. Girls from very common background did and had opportunities to attend universities, and we were encouraged to do that. Some of them later became very famous, as for example, Anna Tsikulina, a peasant girl from Siberia, who became the very first female rector of Latvian Agricultural Academy. But they were raised, raised as a rule by the very traditional families where a good marriage for a girl came first and it was difficult for them to shake such way of thinking. It was ingrained in them. Also, despite the new equality, they had several large disadvantages, the major of which was lacking in primary and secondary education. For example, they had no need, no opportunity during their childhood to study foreign languages, and without that, their scientific education was lacking too. Also, in 1920s, the whole educational system was very unstable in the country. It was surviving reform after reform. Many old school professors died or emigrated during the revolutionary period. Then in 1929, a new wave of the reforms arrived. New authorities were interested in the narrow specialists in different fields, not in all around educated people. Soviet universities and academies were divided into several institutions each. 
the faculty undergone the procedure of cleansing and some were dismissed. Authorities were more interested in promoting new ideology than in education. All this could not be beneficial for students, I think. At the time, the new generation of female scientists entered scientific institutions as junior researchers, strict hierarchy among scientific Soviet scientific community was already established. And as recent graduates, girls naturally were at the very bottom of it. There is an opinion among historians of Russian science that these girls were no ambitions and took position in the scientific institutions and universities out of convenience. To some degree, it's true. But certainly among these young women were some, some with stars in their eyes, with their desire, real desire for the research. But they lost those stars sooner rather than later. They were literally beaten down by life. Conditions of everyday life, both professional and domestic, were very difficult. In modern terms, they were working poor, earning barely enough to buy food. In professional capacity, they were minority, which were exploited. In 1935, Professional Union of Scientific Workers organized an inquiry about working and living conditions of women scientists, most among those who already hold an independent research position and as such had some status. Questionnaire was sent into different scientific institutions. I was able to find some of them. A question was asked whether there were any discrimination in their place of work. The majority answered that there wasn't any. Several said yes. But as the main aim of the questionnaire was to help women, there were questions in need about what they needed most, both professionally and personally. And from answers for those, one, one can see very clearly that discrimination existed. Professionally, they needed access to the modern laboratory equipment, modern books, especially published internationally, opportunities to travel abroad to visit European universities. Personally, they had problems acquiring suitable apartments, needed opportunities for their children to spend holidays in some good places, which were provided for more advanced members of scientific community, but not for them, for good health care, especially for children, and etc., etc. Reading private correspondence of women scientists of the time, one can see that as a rule, they all were overworked, were teaching too many classes that had no time to work, that they had no time to work in laboratories, had so many social obligations, they were left without enough time to prepare for their classes. Working conditions were poor, outdated buildings, sometimes even without central heating, which were impossible to use during winter period, lack of necessary equipment, no spare time at all to prepare and to defend dissertation, and with that no hope for promotion. Even women with good standing and degrees had problems with publication of their papers. Sometimes it took years to publish anything. Sometimes it was impossible at all. The reasons were quite different, but the result all the same. Add to these political repressions of the time when anyone could be accused of treason and arrested unjustly at any minute, and many among women scientists were, or their husbands were, and the Second World War on top of that. In time, these women were content to have any job, any job at all, and just earn a living for their families. And so women filled the ground and lower levels of scientific community. They were welcome to take jobs as laboratory assistants and junior researchers of all sorts, as librarians, editors, organizers of scientific events, different secretaries and assistants and technical staff at large. It was very difficult for them to rise above those occupations. But they worked in scientific fields and did count for the betterment of statistics. From this situation, some strange career strategies were created, strategies that were not broken even before 1990s. One way to live from the very bottom of scientific hierarchy was nepotism. 
one was to come from some from scientific or some other prominent family or to marry into one. So in the second part of the 20th century, one can see many scientific so-called marriages among Soviet scientists with 15, 20 year gap between them. Uh, between spouses, marrying a man already established in his career, a woman was simultaneously creating better living conditions for herself and for her future children and securing possible assistance for her own career based on the husband connections. And all that much more quickly than working on supposedly brilliant papers and trying to publish them. But for this woman, even in professional situations, husbands always came first. They were wives looking out for their husbands, even on their places of work first and everything else second. Lena Stern wrote in 1957 for the famous journal of the time, Soviet Woman, uh, that as a director of the Scientific Institute, she regu regularly watched women in her institute who put men before themselves and before other women in professional situation. She argued that equal rights meant equal responsibilities, responsibilities to advance science, and that many women scientists did not understand that and failed to uphold the end of the deal. She was quite disappointed with them. No wonder this paper was never published. And so it went on. From 50s till 70s, authorities organized campaigns against, against nepotism from time to time. Husbands and wives and other relatives were forbidden to work together in one department or one laboratory. Nothing worked. There were very successful partnerships, of course. For example, famous meteorologists Ekaterina Blinova and her husband Ilya Kibel, who both made it to USSR Academy of Science and who worked together, and not only them, of course, but already in 17s, a woman without benefit of a scientific husband or father could spend all her career as junior researcher and retired in that same capacity after three decades or ran from science altogether after a few years as there were no perspectives for her. General attitude to women scientists already in 1970s, 1980s was as too useful but unimportant on large scale of things persons. And there is a good example for that. In 1961, a special editorial board was created under the umbrella of the USSR Academy of Sciences. Its members were to find authors and to publish biographical books about scientists, engineers, explorers. They had enough resources and from 1963 to 2019, they published near 700 original books. 700 and only eight of them are biographers of women scientists eight from 700. At the same time, already in 1980s, female employees preceded 40% from all scientific personnel in the USSR, up to 70% in some sciences, for example, soil science. And so you see the situation. Uh, all the above, of course, doesn't mitigate many wonderful achievements of female scientists in Soviet Union. They had work and usually sacrifices, but uh, we just need to remember and to reintroduce this heritage, heritage in the history of science, which was not done beforehand, but now this uh, scientific discipline is uh, blooming, I think, in Russia. There are many publications and I hope that it have good future. Thank you. Thank you very much, Olga, for a really fascinating presentation. Um, before I introduce our next guest, just a reminder that throughout the program, if you have questions for our panelists, you can submit them via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at Kennan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending those questions. Um, next, we have Dr. Ina Ganguly. Ina is an associate professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the associate director of the UMass Computational Social Science Institute. Her primary research areas are labor economics and the economics of science and innovation. She is a research affiliate of the Laboratory for Innovation Science at Harvard University and a research fellow at the Stockholm Institute of Transition Economics at the Stockholm School of Economics. In 2018, she received the Russian National Prize in Applied Economics and previously received honorable mention for the W.E. Upjohn Institute for Employment Research Dissertation Award. 
She has been a U.S. Embassy Policy Specialist Fellow in Russia, Azerbaijan, and Tajikistan, a Fulbright Scholar in Ukraine, and a Bundestag International Parliamentary Program Fellow in Germany. She holds a PhD in public policy from Harvard University, a master's in public policy from the University of Michigan, and a Bachelor of Arts from Northwestern University. Yeah, please. Oh, you're muted. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, let me just, my slides up. Thank you, Victoria, for that introduction. And thank you, Olga, for that really fascinating um, discussion. I learned a lot. I think I was frantically uh, taking notes. It was great. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some analysis um, that I've done of gender gaps um, among scientists in terms of their publications. And so um, if you haven't heard of the term productivity puzzle, um, I'll get to that. But that's kind of one of the, the, the concepts that I'm going to be looking at. Okay. So just to get started, um, I wanted to kind of put up um, a, a map of the world that kind of shows what the gender gap in science looks like. And there's a lot of ways you could do this, um, but this is a really striking one that was published in Nature in 2013. And this is showing um, authorships of, of um, female to male authorships. And so basically the green is going to be places where you have fewer female authorships and the red is um, higher numbers. And so I think what stands out from this, and this, uh, the title here is a quote from the article that you know, men dominate scientific production in nearly every country. So no matter how you kind of cut different, you know, the data, or if you look at different measures, um, it's just really striking that around the world, women are really underrepresented in science and they seem to be then producing less knowledge. Um, but one interesting thing that if you kind of zoom in, and this is data that's, you know, from uh, more recent years, 2008 to, to 2012, I think is the data source. Um, what you can see is there already seems to be something going on. Ukraine has more, uh, you know, female authorships. And if you look at kind of the, the former Soviet republics, um, you know, Turkmenistan also has kind of really high. Um, and, you know, this is, again, this is more recent data, but, um, but it's suggesting there may be something that, you know, that we see even today um, after, you know, the end of the Soviet Union that, that's kind of persisting that women in, in, um, in science were, were we're publishing more and more represented. So I mentioned the productivity puzzle. One thing that I've um, been looking at in some recent research is trying to compare in the, the former Soviet republics and then um, the US and Europe, um, what is the state of the gender gap in publications? And um, I came across, a, a, across this concept from um, starting the sociology literature, I believe, um, that referred to differences in gender publications as a productivity puzzle. And why is it a puzzle? Well, you can, um, try to compare uh, women and men who are very similar in, in different regards. And if you try to account for the role of children in marriage and let's say field differences, there still seems to be this gap among women and men in science. And so it was called a puzzle because um, researchers basically couldn't figure out why do we still see, if you look at scientists who are um, say in the same field and you um, even account for that women maybe have more family responsibilities, you still see that they're publishing less. And Olga alluded already to, to many of the reasons for this that we can't see in data, right? We can't see things about um, often, you know, she mentioned the role of marriage, which is fascinating. We often can't see some of these other factors like discrimination um, and other, um, other factors like that. So one question that I've been looking at was trying to see, well, if we think about um, the Soviet Union where you had, um, again, it was, you know, in terms of um, resources for R&D and for science, um, you know, similar to the U.S., you know, in, in um, prior to the end of the USSR. Um, but as Olga described in terms of, you know, the legal um, aspects and also, you know, the norms, gender equality was uh, really at the forefront earlier than in the United States. And so, you know, Olga mentioned some very fascinating um, you know, legal changes. Um, but as she also mentioned, you know, you can see these stark gender gaps. And so um, I had just looked at some data in 1989. So just, you know, prior to the end of the Soviet Union, and, um, you know, only 2% of the members um, were women in, in the uh, Academy of Sciences. So very small numbers, um, you know, even um, in, in terms of at the highest levels. So, um, you know, often when we think about the U.S. versus the, you know, or the USSR in terms of gender equality, you, you um, probably recognize these women. Um, and, you know, this is kind of put forward as kind of evidence that, that um, in the Soviet Union, you know, there's a greater dedication to equality uh, of women. And so we have Valentina Tereshkova, who was the first woman 
in space in 1963, whereas in the US, uh, you know, Sally Ride, and this was almost 20 years later, right, that, that she went to space. And so this is kind of put forth as evidence. And, um, and I'd want to kind of dig into this further that, you know, these are astronauts, but, you know, what do we, what do we see among, among um, scientists and also, you know, looking forward to, as, as Olga mentioned, you know, kind of the, the daughters and the young women and what their aspirations were. And I found, um, you might have seen there was an interesting article um, that mentioned, uh, I think it was in the Atlantic, mentioned um, these two letters from, from young girls to astronauts. Um, and so on, um, I think for you on the left, we have a letter from um, a Ukrainian girl to Yuri Gagarin. Um, and I don't have time to go through the whole thing, but if you just see the bold part, uh, it says, it seems to me that with the kind of preparation that you gave Valia Tereshkova, I would, be, uh, I would also be able to fly to the cosmos. And then on the other side, you have a letter to John Glenn um, from a Minnesota girl um, where she says, I would very much like to become an astronaut, but since I'm a 15 year old girl, I guess that would be impossible. So this is kind of just to show that, you know, maybe there's something about having a role model, but about also, you know, norms and aspirations about what, um, you know, women could achieve in, 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 um, in scientific endeavors. Now, this would suggest that we should see, you know, more women who are in science and um, and publishing. And so I wanted to, um, you know, go to, to publication data and try to um, understand how large was the gender gap in science before and after the end of the USSR. If we think about, say, the end of the USSR is kind of a, a time when then things changed, um, you know, relatively quickly. Um, and then, you know, given what we just saw about um, if we, you know, compare uh, what, you know, in terms of, you know, first woman in space, uh, Soviet Union in the U.S. Um, how did these publication gaps compare to the U.S. at the time? Um, and one thing to note, if, if um, you haven't worked with, um, you know, publication data, um, what is hard actually is to study gender gaps in publications. Um, a lot of the evidence is from the U.S. and it's actually often based on self-reported measures of publications. And why is that? Well, um, it's actually really hard to infer gender from names on publications. So usually, um, you know, it's changing now, but many publications have um, just, you know, first initial, it doesn't have a name. And so if you look at all authors on a paper, it's really hard to know well, how many women you know, are on this team. Um, now, what um, is very convenient um, in the case of looking at you know, publications in the Soviet Union or in Russia or former Soviet republics um, is that you, know, you can use um, naming conventions to, to infer gender, right? So you can basically see you know, there's certain um, you know, suffixes, right? So A is, for example, one way to, to in many cases, if a scientist is a woman. So I can use that to try to um, identify uh, among publications, you know, who, who were women and who were men. Um, and so I used um, a data set, which is um, the Web of Science, actually the same one that the Nature authors used in that map at the beginning that I, that I showed you. And um, what I did is I put together a data set of um, about 15,000 Soviet scientists and their publications. And, um, and so again, this is, you know, 15,000 scientists, but then, you know, I think, you know, maybe like 5 million publications, I believe. Um, now, Again, they're not going to include all science that was being published in, in the in Soviet Union and Russia, but just to give you an example, like it does have pretty decent coverage. So these are, you know, two journals, for example, that are covered in the data set. So one way to, to look at the data is to kind of, and most of, you know, Olga gave this very fascinating history of kind of, you know, in the over a long period of time. And um, unfortunately with the publication data, I think, you know, basically prior to the 1980s, it's um, a little bit hard at this point with the web of science to look at, um, to look at these, these gender gaps. Um, but what I can show you here is from 1980 to 2000, if we think of the end of the Soviet Union around here, um, Red is the is average publications of women and um, blue is the average publications of men. And what you can see, it's pretty kind of steady that there's this gap and it's about 24, 25% um, of a gap kind of, you know, prior to, um, you know, 1991. And what you see is that both men and women, um, you know, experience this fall and we know, you know, well, that there are a lot of reasons for this, you know, lack of funding, uh, wages, et cetera, go, you know, almost not, not being paid to, to do your work. Um, but what you can see is that actually, um, it's hard to see here, but there's actually a bit of a widening. So um, initially, you know, it didn't look like it, it got larger, but actually widened a little bit, not a lot, but basically in the 90s, it seems that um, women were publishing even less. And so I wanted to um, 
you know, dig into this a little bit, but just kind of um, one thing that I did is if you kind of estimate this gap, it was about, um, you know, 24% during Soviet times and increased to 27%. Now, it's actually hard to compare to the US because as I said, um, even in the US, we don't have good measures of the gender gap in publications from, from these periods, again, because of these, these issues with names. Um, but um, there are some published estimates from the US that um, are based on, for example, self-reported data. And it's actually striking that they're almost exactly the same. So it's around like 26% or so. So it's a little bit larger um, but I found that to be um, quite interesting that, you know, this was again in the 90s, so not, or sorry, in the 80s and 90s, so much later than in the period that, you know, Olga was talking about um, most of her presentation. But, you know, again, despite this kind of, you know, emphasis on gender equality and scientific achievement in, in the Soviet Union, we actually have kind of similar levels of, of publication gaps. So why did it increase um, in the 90s? So, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to give you the full answer, and this is actually something I'm still working on. Um, but one thing that you do see in the data and, um, and you know, I've had conversations as well and interviews with, with scientists um, about, about these experiences. Um, but one thing you see in the data is that women um, actually, you know, again, we saw they had a greater fall in publications. Um, and it seems to be something about who left science and who's, who was able to stay um, you know, in, in the scientific sector. And so it looks like actually the women who are publishing a lot during the Soviet period, and this is where I'm tracking the same women you know, before and after, um, the women who are publishing a lot were um, actually more likely to exit science than similar men who had similar publication levels. Um, and then if you look kind of at people who are publishing in kind of the, the lower part of the distribution, um, it looks like women kind of up to like the 40th percentile, so, you know, below kind of, you know, the, the median, um, they were kind of equally likely to exit but exit science. Um, but for men, it really was the men who are publishing the least that were the, the most likely to exit. So we're kind of getting these more productive women if we want to think again, caveat that when I think we're talking about product productivity, it's all about publications. And we know that that does not a great measure of, of productivity always. Okay, so I just wanted to end before we get to the discussion. Um, one thing that um, I'm, I'm looking into more um, is field differences. So, you know, Olga mentioned about, you know, kind of how women got into, you know, certain fields or topics. Uh, that seems to be a really important part of the story of um, the transition period. So women, um, from the data that I was looking at, you know, we're more represented in chemistry and the life sciences than in physics or math. And if you look at which fields had the greatest declines in productivity and who was the most likely to exit science, um, it's, you know, even apart from women or men, it, people in these fields, you know, in physics and math, if you were in physics and math, were more likely to continue on. Um, I have some other work showing that some of this is likely due to migration and international collaborations that, that were um, possible um, that allow people to kind of continue to, to be um, active. Um, but, um, you know, it definitely seems like these, these field differences mattered. Uh, and so this is one graph where this is women in kind of my, my sample of people who are active in the 1980s um, and men. And you can see these stark differences um, where, and again, this is based on publication data. And, you know, I'm sure there's, there's data again, if we just look at, um, you know, across institutions in the Soviet Union. Um, but what you can see is that, you know, physics, uh, you know, 35% in this sample 10 um, are men, 10% are women. So there are really, you know, differences here. Um, women were more likely to be in chemistry and life sciences. So, um, so in future work, I'm going to kind of be looking at, at this more um, and also that role of, of migration um, and, you know, who was able to kind of leave and, you know, maybe come back, um, but um, also kind of of, you know, travel abroad during the 90s and, and, and continue their, their science. Thank you very much, Ina. So I see that we have quite a few questions already coming in um, for both of you. I'll start with a few of my own for moderator privilege. And this is just also a reminder that if you have any questions, email them to kenan at wilsoncenter.org, to tweet us at Kenan Institute, or to write on our Facebook page. Um, Olga, I wanted to start with a question for you. So I'm not sure how much you track this in your research, but I was wondering about what kind of kind of publicity campaigns existed for getting women involved in science. Was that something that the state encouraged? Were there quotas at universities? To what degree was this an emphasis placed on women, particularly um, in the mid 
kind of life of the Soviet Union? At what point was it kind of encouraged? Was it encouraged at all? You know, at first, in 1920s, 1930s, government published special books with statistics where it, well, bragged how many female students, how many female graduates, uh, postgraduates, and so on and so on. And there were magazines, public magazines, not scientific ones, which published uh, interview with women scientists. There was someone like woman pilot or woman captain of the ship. It was quite the same. The example of high achievement of the new authorities. And uh, they were under this, <laughs> they uh, laughed at discrimination. You know, of when once of, in one of such interviews with a uh, woman who worked with uh, Vavilov, famous scientists, uh, they were asked, uh, usually you are blue stockings if you are working in science. And they just laughed and said, oh, it's no like that. It, it was just propaganda. Uh, but later, it's all failed. Already in late 30s, in 1937 and so on, there would be conferences of wives, a meeting of wives of military, of wives of scientists, of wives in support for something. And it was more important than women. There was one attempt in 1936 and then in 1937, conferences of women science, scientists were held in Russia in first in Moscow, then in, in Leningrad, and then again in provincial cities. And quite large, in Leningrad it was 1,000 participants, uh, but uh, authorities not like it very much. It was official papers from women about their achievements uh, during their work, during 20 years of Soviet government. Uh, I don't know why the government never liked these conferences and they were stopped. Uh, later, already afterwards, uh, similar conferences in late 50s were held in uh, some of the republic in uh, Ukraine, as I recall, maybe in Belarusia, uh, in uh, Asia, in Central Asian republics, even already in 70s. But uh, they were rare, and that was already for propaganda. The women organized them, but not because they wanted to, but because they were encouraged by authorities. And all in all, women were left without any support. You know, when I was entering university, and it was in 1988, uh, if I were a boy who served in Soviet army, I would have some privileges to enter the university. But if I was a girl, and even if, for example, I had children, I would have no privileges. So it was privileges for boys and not for girls. And so it like that. That's very interesting, especially that contradiction of what you would expect of the state to be promoting it. Thank you very much. And then, um, Ina, I had a question for you um, specifically on, I know that you do some work on um, the post-socialist countries generally. What is the disparity like among countries in the former Soviet Union? Is there any country that's performing particularly well in terms of this publication gap? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think, um, you know, I was actually surprised that in the the map that I showed you that, you know, it looked like Ukraine and uh, Turkmenistan were doing better. Um, I mean, I think that, it, it um, you know, there was a range of experiences. And I know in some places, um, for example, in Georgia, I'd heard from some interviews that, you know, women were more likely to go into, um, you know, kind of public sector jobs, leaving science. And so I think this, um, you know, I think across the board, women were more likely than men to leave science, but I think in some places um, they were able to kind of stay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think um, there is variety. I haven't looked actually at the numbers recently of like kind of where the gaps were the largest, but, um, but I think what is striking is that actually in, um, you know, in, in the Russian Federation, they actually um, are, I think, are you know larger than in some of these other places, and that's actually a new work. I'm interested to kind of look in some of these other places. I mean, I think the problem is is that funding across the board just you know uh, was gone, and so it was really hard, right, during the '90s to stay. And again, I think um, 
this idea of who is able to to go abroad or or to um, start these international collaborations, I think, was key. And um, I think from some places, I think in Russia, we see more international collaborations than in other places. I think in some, some of the Soviet you know, former republics, um, it was hard to kind of um, maintain these international collection uh, connections. And I think it was even harder for women because, again. Um, you know, people, you know, it, it was harder to, to kind of, you know, go abroad and travel for a variety of reasons. So yeah, so I don't have kind of concrete numbers. Um, but yeah, I think, again, there was a range of experiences. And yeah, again, it, it turns out it looks like in terms of publishing, Ukraine and Turkmenistan happened to, to do better. Um, but again, that's just one measure. And I think there's different ways you can cut the data as well. Um, just to follow up on that, have you noticed, so I know that in countries like Russia and elsewhere, they're kind of currently building this uh, elite system where they're trying to create prestige in their universities and publisher parish has become a major issue for them. Now that this has happened, has that increased kind of parity between publication records between men and women or is that is it too early to tell on that point? Yeah, no, that's a great point. I've seen some work done on this. I think the issue, and you know, Olga will um, be curious to hear her thoughts on this. But I think um, this pressure to to publish. I think what's happening, unfortunately, is that um, if we think about kind of impactful articles, you know, there's kind of more of this um, like bean counting. But if we think that you know, if if it's better to kind of you know devote. Um, time to kind of like, if we think about high, you know, higher quality, um, that seems like something that that's been an issue. Um, but it's an interesting question. And I haven't looked at it. But I think that's a great, great point that um, whether this has maybe improved the gender gap or, or not with um, kind of, you know, creating incentives for for because, you know, one thing that we see um, in the US that's discussed um, in um, is more, I think, in the social sciences, but, um, you know, this idea that women actually are kind of sometimes less likely to, to submit for publication because they want to be perfect or, you know, you hear these kind of things. And so it might be an interesting question whether that um, having those clear incentives actually to, to publish might actually push women to kind of do that more. Um, what Olga mentioned was very interesting about, um, you know, whether women are interested, in, you know, she had the quote about stars in their eyes and like, you know, whether women are kind of focused on career advancement. And this might be actually one mechanism to kind of push people to, to, to really think about career advancement more in terms of publications. Um, so yeah, I think that's an important, important point. And then just one more question before I move again to audience questions for both of you. I'm curious about the question of brain drain. I know that that was particularly, of course, an issue during the transition period, but also for Olga, kind of the idea of if women left, why were they leaving? Even if not the Soviet Union, but if they were leaving academia and if they were leaving sciences, what was the reason then and how did it change? Were women disproportionately affected by brain drain? Were they, you know, how stuck were they, I guess, even during the transition? Well, it is really difficult to tell just now. Women live in science sometimes worked in libraries, sometimes immigrated, sometimes went to work in archives or museums and uh, spent their whole lives there. Though they were trained to be scientists, for example, a woman who was trained to be a field geologist would spend her whole life in Polytechnical Museum. It was good and interesting job, but it's much more convenient for her family and children and so on. Uh, so they dispersed somehow from sciences, but sometimes they transferred from scientific institutions to other institutions among Academy of Sciences. You know, I had a colleague here who worked in very serious biology institution and ran a laboratory. But she told me that she had to left it behind because her mother-in-law told her that you have a child to raise and a husband to care for, and your experiments run 24 seven and you have no time and you can decide what you want, your family or your job. And she went from scientific institute to the Institute of the, of the History of Sciences, which did not have laboratory experiments 24 seven and one can make her, uh, and she can make her own time. So such were exits for women from sciences. Sometimes it was just near science, but not science already. 
it's just that. Thank you. Anna, did you have anything to add on that? Yeah, no, I think that's, um, you know, I think this uh, question of, of brain jamming, you know, I have some work looking at who left the former Soviet Union in the 90s. And, um, you know, one thing that I was, you know, is striking that again, by field, you see a lot of differences. So it's a lot of the physicists, right, or the mathematicians. Um, and so I do think this, um, you know, if we look at again, women's representation across these fields, um, you know, they had fewer opportunities to leave, but leave to continue science. I think still, you know, women who left science probably also migrated. But I think, um, you know, if we look at, you know, in the US, for example, of, of, of uh, scientists who left the former Soviet Union, you know, they're very productive, we have, or, you know, not only the US, but, you know, we have um, Nobel Prize winners, right, who who left the for, you know, former Soviet Union, went to Europe and, and won the Nobel Prize in physics, for example. Um, so I think that was a, you know, really obviously key way, you know, way that people were able to continue to stay productive. But um, again, I think women had fewer opportunities to do that, the, having science as a channel to migrate. So I think, um, you know, looking at brain drain would be a very interesting uh, research project. Again, it's hard because you have to be able to track people across countries. And you can do that with publications, which is stuff that I've done. Um, but what you, can, you can't observe the people who left science and then migrated because they're not publishing anymore. So if we had more data on that, I think it would be really fascinating or, or some surveys. Thank you very much. Um, so I'll move to some audience questions that came in. Um, so one person notes that, of course, there are a few female rectors or academics, but women do tend to head major academic and research organizations um, and commonly more in feminine, as this person puts it, academic branches, such as medicine or languages. Does this mean, in your opinion, that as long as the particular field is not perceived as, quote, too hard for women, a woman would have exactly the same professional opportunities in it as a man? So in kind of the more the less stereotypically masculine roles, is there more parity, basically? I mean, I'll just quickly say, I mean, I think that's an interesting um, question. I know from, you know, the US, there's been a lot of, um, you know, it's interesting in some fields, women are getting, you know, more PhDs than men, for example, like biology and, and other fields. But, um, I, you know, I, I think this idea, though, that it, there's still um, not parity. I mean, if you look at, we, you know, who are editors and you look at leadership roles, um, women are still underrepresented at the, these top levels. And so um, I think we need to understand a lot more about why that is. Um, but, yeah, and I didn't, I guess in Russia, I'd be curious to hear, yeah, what, what Olga thinks there. Well, we can see it in our everyday teaching and in our own lives. When you visited historical faculty, you would see 100 girls and five boys. And then when you will have PhD program, you will have the same five boys and maybe three girls. And then you will have three PhD doctors, boys and one girl. Uh, but if you will visit engineering group, you will see 100 boys, two girls, and maybe these two girls will make two PhD. <laughs> so, because they are so oriented, but maybe not. So this is divided even before uh, university education. Already in school, girls went more for humanities and much less for mathematics and physics. And I even don't know whether it is a family set of mind, uh, traditional, where one, because in the beginning of the 20th century, it was not so. When only women's courses for higher education and women didn't have access to universities, there was special faculty for math and physics and sciences full of with girls. And they were very popular. And they said that to study history is much more difficult than to study mathematics, you see. But then it all changed dramatically. <laughs> but even in those areas where there are a lot of girls as students, usually late in commanding and research positions will see and uh, find men. It is the reality in Russian science. Thank you. 
Um, and another question that came in for you specifically, Olga, someone wrote, you've described how class and family background used to be critical factors behind Soviet women's careers and how an academic marriage was a career enhancing factor for women. Do you think it is still the case to kind of, maybe not an academic marriage specifically, but more academic marriage in a professional sense where you ally yourself with a very well-known doctor, are you more likely to be successful if you're in a particular lab or even, you know, kind of aligning yourself with the right class of people, the right class of people who might have those connections. Is that still the case to your knowledge? Well, I really don't know. So when I was a graduate student still, one of my older colleague, a man, told me that, do you know that uh, the majority of women who made doctors, they're married to doctors. <laughs> so, but that was personal experience of the previous generation. And just now, everything changed after 1990s. Without any money in the field, it is difficult for men to work there. They couldn't support their families. And there are research made by some sociologists about feminization of Soviet, of post-Soviet sciences of the time even because there much less money left here. And so I suppose that uh, people from prominent families find some other occupations for themselves or migrated uh, to other countries. And so it is no important just now. So of course, if you have support of your husband, of your family, it is very great to everyone, I think, it, and very helpful in every work and every field of work, so. it's very interesting, thank you. Um, someone also commented on, or has a question about uh, parental leave in Russia, how it's a bit more, or quite a bit more flexible than our non-existent parental leave policies in the United States. Um, the question is, do you think these labor laws um, offer enough support and protection to female scientists? Is there anything missing? And does the extent of time that women can be on parental leave um, actually create kind of a catch-22 where they're uh, affected in the labor market or they're discriminated against in hiring by taking this time? Not sure if either of you have thoughts on that. And, and I'll just quickly say from, you know, kind of international evidence on this is that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very striking. People have kind of showed these graphs that, you know, when you have a man versus a woman, when they have their first child, and then what happens to publications, and it's like very striking. And obviously, I think it's mainly from the U.S. And so um, we don't, you know, we don't have leave, but, um, but this idea also, if you did have leave, um, you know, would that actually reduce the gap because women wouldn't be able to be in, in the lab for, you know, for that year. So it's a difficult question. I think, you know, um, places like, you know, Sweden where men and women are taking leave and taking that break in their careers seems to be places where then uh, maybe the hit isn't as large. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know if, if um, Olga knows of, of evidence from, from Russia, um, but it does seem like, you know, this, um, you know, having children and, you know, as the, the anecdote that, that she told, I mean, that, that seems to be like the biggest, um, you know, obstacle to, to kind of, you know, staying in, in science for, for women. Um, okay. Um, there's a question from uh, Larissa Jaraglazova from Tomsk State University. She asks, um, can we say that there is continuity and discrimination patterns in Russia compared to the Soviet times, or are today's versions and patterns of discrimination different? Or is it just the same thing with kind of a different flavor? Olga, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, it's really... Or even anecdotally, right? Yes, it's really difficult to say. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, this is where it's a compl yeah. This, I guess from like kind of a data part of it is hard, you know, hard to measure these things, right? And so, um, but yeah, I'd be fascinated if we um, I think kind of hearing experiences from from women would be yes, would be so important. It's just for modern days, I have only my personal experience and I'm historian, not a scientist. Right. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. 
Um, so I guess another broad question that came in is about um, in the Soviet Union, you know, it was ahead of many Western countries in terms of women's engagement in academia, but it's also a bit of a cautionary tale on how official rhetoric and legislation are not enough to overcome prejudice and stereotypes. What lessons do you think one can learn from that experience in order to avoid equality on paper and prevent backsliding as a result of a conservative turn? Well, lessons is difficult to learn. <laughs> I suppose it is how people see themselves, how they see their futures and what they want from their futures. You know, after in Soviet Union, women had to work, you know, that in, in the USA and in Europe during or after the Second World War, housewife was important and then it became not a very good word. At the same time, in Soviet Union, women had to work and they were very tired from that. And because of that, in 1919s, they achieved an opportunity to have a husband and to become a housewife, and it became a very popular. If our grand-grandmothers from the beginning of the 20th century would seize it, they will be terrified, I think. They were fighting for women equality, for the possibility for women to work in scientific jobs, in intellectual jobs, uh, to be independent. And our contemporary girls, or if you will see our TV <laughs> sometimes, they wanted to be housewives and raise their children. And a large propaganda today is about that. So is it backslide? Maybe it is, but <laughs> I really don't know how it will all play out. I think that it is some period just because we knew how tired was our mothers working and having family and with many difficulties in their everyday life. And uh, we wanted some break from that. Maybe some generation, the next generations will be again different <laughs> from that. So it's something like that. Yeah, okay. I just, I think it's a, an interesting question. Yeah, kind of, you know, this, anyway, Olga's also alluding to this idea of like, you know, preferences and, you know, uh, you know, if you can have legislation, but if kind of norms and, you know, um, get norms about gender roles are very different from that, then, you know, you're not going to see, um, you know, an impact. Um, you know, I know in, in Sweden, I mentioned before, but that's a case where you actually had kind of legislation about parental leave that was very, you know, it's very precise that, you know, men and women, you know, fathers and mothers should take, you know, exactly the same days of leave, right? It's very much structured to try to get a certain outcome. Um, and then, you know, the, some interesting research about whether that actually changed norms. Um, but, you know, I think this idea of like, what, you know, what the norms are, but also what people's perceptions of what others think, there's some interesting work, um, um, you know, looking at women's participation in the labor force, where um, in a very conservative society in Saudi Arabia that I've doing, been doing some work in, uh, where it shows that actually, um, you know, the, the norms are such that it's like women don't work, but um, it's, it's kind of not considered socially acceptable, but actually um, privately in families, fathers and, and husbands will actually want, want um, their daughters and, and wives to work, but they think that everyone else doesn't. So there's also these interesting um, questions about you know, are social norms actually in line with what people privately prefer? So I think there's a lot of kind of interesting questions here. And I would just say that um, I think one thing that's interesting from you know, why, why, you know, this first woman in space is kind of, you know, an overused, um, you know, comparison, but I think this question of role models is really important. And um, I know in economics, which is also, you know, my field, and it's a field where you have also um, a large gender gap. Um, and there's a lot of discussions about it. Um, one thing that seems to be um, working um, is uh, is role models. And so this idea of having women coming, who are economists coming into introductory economics classes and um, speaking, just that exposure, seeing that, you know, someone like me, um, you know, as a, if I'm a, a woman sitting in a first year economics course, like, oh, a woman can be an economist. So those kind of things, um, you know, they're kind of little interventions, but they can kind of work. But I think, get into an issue of, you know, what, um, what Olga mentioned, maybe this generation 
in Russia, you'll have fewer women in science. But then if that role model or, you know, if seeing examples is important, then it's interesting whether the next generation will, maybe you do need then from the legislation side more of a push. So yeah, it's complex because there's a lot of different factors, but, um, you know, kind of tweaking some of them, um, you know, can, can have large effects, I think. It's all very interesting. And actually a, a question came in about the younger generation and you both kind of addressed that about whether they'd be still prone to the same stereotypes. It seems like, you know, they're not, the stereotypes are not really going anywhere even. I mean, they're fading away, but they're still in force. And Olga, like you mentioned, when you see your mother or you see your aunt who's struggling to balance both a family and a job, that's almost more, <laughs> more of, a, of an influence about, you know, just doing one and doing one well instead of being torn in two directions. So that's very interesting. Um, I have just a couple more questions and I think we'll wrap, but um, one question came in for you, Ina, um, from Jacob Moore. He just asked um, specifically related to your research, um, were there differences between the discipline distribution of women scientists in the US and USSR that you found? Um, if so, what might explain these disparities if they're similar? What do they tell us about the disciplines and I guess how those disciplines are viewed? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And I, um, yeah, I didn't put it up there, but that's, that's actually yeah, very spot on that, um, you know, the gender gaps that you know, I showed were, were very similar in the US and the USSR, but actually, yeah, the field, the distribution of cross fields is also quite similar. So, you know, like I mentioned, um, among Soviet scientists, you know, life sciences, um, was you know a field in chemistry um, in the U.S. Um, women were kind of less represented in chemistry, but definitely in the life sciences is a field where you have kind of the most women, um, and so that could definitely be you know you know a, a reason why you then see such similarity in the, in the gender gaps. And so yeah, so that then gets into a, a larger question of you know why is it you know going back to what we said about kind of the more female you know fields, um, you know why is it that life sciences, for example. Um, is something that, you know, common to in both countries. And this actually relates to some other work that I'm doing, um, which is on um, kind of whether women are um, more interested in fields where you can have social impact and you can actually, um, in, you know, um, benefit society through your work. So there's some work that shows that, um, you know, when we look at what women want to do with their careers, even at a younger age, we're doing some work with um college students, um, it looks like women seem to rank more highly that they want to help society, help others, right? So that's why we see that, you know, more women are kind of in care work often, right? Um, but also among scientists that if you think that, um, you know, if it's the case that women are more attracted to fields where they can actually you know, create a vaccine for, for COVID-19, right? So then um, you, they might be drawn more to the life sciences. And so that could be something that, that might be common despite, you know, these differences in the overall institutional, you know, landscape in the Soviet Union and the USSR, maybe that's something common, I'm not sure. Um, but I think that would be a really interesting direction to look into. That's very, that's very interesting. And it's like you said, I think that, you know, there, it appears that there are openings to kind of do both, right? To stay in the sciences, to help people. I think that's also, um, I'm from California and a lot of women are in the tech industry for a similar reason where they, you know, go in with the idea that they can better improve the lives of others by, you know, social, well, not social media, of course, but technological advances can be that kind of assistance. Um, I think that that's all of the questions that came in. So I'll just give you both just one minute to kind of wrap up any thoughts that you have and kind of where do we go from here, I guess, is a very open-ended question to, to end on. And what, what more needs to be done in your opinion to improve parity? Why is it important? Why do we need diversity, I guess, in the sciences? I know why, but <laughs> I'll let you take it. <laughs> Well, it's a difficult question. You know, we still don't have a single dictionary of Russian woman scientists, single biographical dictionary. You have dozens in the USA and in Europe and in practically every one country. But just now we try to prepare one and still don't know where we publish it. Nobody interested just like that. Oh, so yes, some promotion of the idea, I think, must be had. 
because young girls, they even don't know that they can be scientists. This profession is not very popular in Russia nowadays. And graduate students are simple poor. They don't have any money. And when they first arrive in scientific institute after their graduation, they well feeling strange because if they would work as a manager, they would have 50,000 rubles. When they work in scientific institution on the ground level, they will have 20,000 rubles, maybe. And <laughs> you understand the difference. So something needs to change. And uh, I hope that it will change for the sake of our science and for the sake of our young people and uh, for the sake of women, because it is extremely interesting and fulfilling profession and it's for all curious and for all daring and for all who wanted something from life and so it is very sad when women are missing on such an opportunity because it is a really great opportunity I think for everyone and women need such chances to fulfill their life so thank you for this question sure. Um, yeah, thank you. So this was, um, yeah, I really um, enjoyed fascinating discussion today. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, from your question, Victoria, you know, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, we need women, we need, you know, we need diversity in terms of you know, race, gender, um, ethnicity, you know, we look again at the, the vaccine, right, there's been so much um, discussion that, you know, they're immigrants. So, you know, we need, we need, um, perspectives, right, to, to kind of advance knowledge. So um, I think it's clear that we need more women in science. And I think, you know, what can be done is a complex issue. I think what's great is that we're having more discussions about it now, right? It's something that, um, you know, we're having this event and I think there's been a lot of, uh, you know, on social media, but elsewhere, there's a lot of discussions. Um, you know, USPTO is talking about how we can, um, you know, we actually, they, they don't, we don't know the gender of, of patent holders. There's, there's data now that we can actually look at the gaps, but I think um, even, you know, having data so we can understand the extent of the gaps, because, you know, only once we know what the problem is, can we, can we actually try to, you know, have solutions for it. So I think, you know, that's really important to understand um, the problem. Um, but I think one thing that especially, you know, with, with science, and this is where, you know, Olga was mentioning in, in Russia, and I think in, in the US too, is um, we need to kind of look earlier, like, you know, in the US, there's a lot of discussion about the pipeline problem, right? Like, so if we're already looking at people who've already made the decision to do a PhD, as Olga said, those two women in physics who started out, you know, as undergrads, like, you know, they may go to do the PhD, they were committed from the beginning, but we have to look kind of earlier, right? Like, why is it then that um, women are not kind of, you know, going into those fields earlier? And so, like I mentioned, I think there's some interesting work showing that kind of little interventions can matter, how you frame um, a field, like in economics, I think how it's, um, how it's presented to undergrads, it, it, you don't realize that you actually can do research on social issues and, and help others. You think it's all about banking or, or whatever it is. Um, and so I think this idea, if we kind of look earlier and, and see how can we actually, you know, how can we get more women interested in these fields, um, I think is a, it would be a kind of fruit, fruitful way to go forward. Excellent. Thank you both so much. That was, I mean, we have our blueprint now <laughs> for how to continue forward. So that will conclude for today's discussion. Thank you so much, Ina and Olga, for just fascinating remarks, fascinating insights on a topic that we will continue to discuss, as well as our larger programming on the status of women in Russia and Eurasia. Thank you again to the Science and Technology Innovation Program for co-sponsoring today's event. Um, for our audience, thank you for joining us today. This will be one of our last events for 2020, but we'll be back in 2021 for more programming. And just keep an eye on our website for additional information on that. Thank you all very much.